The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Christ. Again, good morning and welcome on this Easter Sunday. It's truly a delight to have you with us this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that on this Sunday of all Sundays, the Sunday of Sundays in which we celebrate your son's resurrection, pray that the words in my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing, acceptable to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what it is that you need to hear this Easter Sunday. Luke's account was just read to you by Craig. Last year, it was Mark. Next year will be Matthew in the lectionary cycle. John can be substituted in any year. So what not only do you need to hear, but what do you need to hear from Luke this morning? Because for each of us, Easter is different this year from all other years. Two Easter's ago in 2020, I stood here and I proclaimed, Christ is risen, and no one said anything because no one was here. David Lutz, he was here. He it was alone who said Christ is risen indeed, but it doesn't have the same effect when one person says it in an empty room. And last year, some of you were here, but we were still socially distanced. It wasn't anything like it is today. We're still having to RSVP to come to worship, still masked. And so I know for many of you, this is your first Easter celebration in a number of years. So what do you need to hear this Easter? I've done four funerals already this year. And so Easter is, is always, in one sense, a celebration after a funeral, but it feels especially like that for me this year, and I know that I'm not alone. Others of you haven't lost loved ones to death. Some of you have. Others haven't lost a loved one that way, but you've lost your loved one nonetheless. You've lost them to illness or to a diagnosis, to an addiction, separation or divorce, to some sort of mental illness, depression, to conflict, or even just harsh words that have been said. We can do so much damage just through our words. When my boys were 
so much younger, one of them who was four at the time, he glared at me in anger and he said, I don't like you, I don't like Jesus, and I don't like Pistol Pete. And I went to Oklahoma State, and it was interesting to think that he saved that for the last, that that for him was really twisting the knife in deep. I don't know what that says about me, but we've all said damaging things to people. We've all been damaged by things that have been said to us. And we all know what it is to lose someone, to become lost ourselves. And so who or what have you lost this year? And what do you need to hear this Easter in order that you might celebrate with joy everything that this day offers? So two points this morning from our text, what the women do and what Christ had to do. First of all, what the women do. Each gospel account of Jesus's resurrection is unique in some way with different emphases, different details. Matthew's account shakes the world. When Jesus dies on the cross, there's an earthquake. And then on, on Easter Sunday, the women have already arrived at the tomb and angels descend. And as in their descent, they shake the world again. There's another earthquake and the stone rolls away. So Matthew shakes the world. Mark doesn't shake the world. He shakes people. Women arrive at the tomb and they, they shake, they tremble in fear and confusion at what has happened at the resurrection. And then the, the gospel of Mark ends with them in fear and confusion. John's emphasis is grief. Mary Magdalene is there alone at the tomb and Jesus is standing right before her, but she can't even recognize him because she's so overwhelmed and crushed by the grief in her life at that morning. And in Luke, we have this question. I wonder if you noticed it in verse five. The angels ask, why do you seek the living among the dead? Do we do this? I wonder, do, do you do this? Seek the living among the dead. In my office, I have a, a broken bowl. It's, it's held together with scotch tape. And I've told this to some of you before, but it's this common white cereal bowl and it became holy for me a number of years ago. Holy in the sense it was taken away from common use for special use because as I was preparing to perform the burial for a dear friend, Andrew Halton, I brought that bowl from my house here to church. I dug some soil from the courtyard, put it in that bowl, and then used that soil to bury my friend. I took it and I cast it on his casket saying, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And his father held that bowl after the service, overcome with grief, dropped it, broke it, gave it back to me in pieces, and I taped it together. And it now sits in my office and serves as a symbol to me of what death does to all of us who are still living. In many ways, we're like that bowl with pieces of our hearts and pieces of our lives missing, not whole, at barely at times being held together like scotch-taped lives. And that is these women here in Luke's account. They come here doing whatever it is they can. It's utterly ordinary and common in the way that they are to seek the living among the dead because they're seeking marks the utter ordinariness of loss and death in this world. And notice, they have no real workable plan. They're, they're coming, they've prepared spices and anointments to, to properly grieve Jesus and to attend to his body and to honor him through attending to his body. They've waited until the Sabbath is over. It's Sunday morning, but they come, they have no plan to deal with the stone. How is it that they're actually going to get to Jesus's body? They're, they're doing whatever they can to be close to Jesus still, even if it doesn't make any sense. And we do this. We go and sit beside graves at cemeteries. We, we place flowers on graves. We hold and, and we look at pictures of our loved ones lost. We have objects that, that represent them to us. It, it's just us 
trying to stay as close to them as possible. They're, they're slight shreds of solace, comforts nonetheless. They're means by which we try and communicate and say to them, I remember you, I love you, I miss you, I wish you hadn't been taken away from this world. That's what these women do here. That's what they're doing. It's utterly common and understandable. But there are also dangerous ways to seek the living among the dead. Or to put it differently, to seek life in places or in things that can only result in death. That's what we talked about throughout the season of Lent here at All Saints. Our sermon series was on the seven deadly sins, and many of you worshiped here with us. The seven deadly sins, or as we told you, the seven capital vices. And we emphasize to you that a vice is more spiritually deadly than any single individual thought or word or act of darkness or brokenness. Because what a vice is, is a habituated way of being. It's one of those thoughts, one of those words, one of those deeds, dark, broken, sinful, that we, we do over and over again. And before too long, that act or thought or word, it becomes part of us, it becomes ingrained in us. It carves grooves or patterns on our soul so that it it's becomes reflexive to us. It becomes part of our nature, second nature, as we say. And it's a part of us so much that it begins to control us or to own us or to, to make itself what rules us. And the example that I gave is we don't just tell lies, but we tell lies over and over. Before too long, we are a liar. And the church for centuries has said there are seven capital vices. Capital in the sense like Austin, Texas is the capital of our state. Because capital cities, money, influence, power flows from them to other cities and towns. So too with these vices, influence over every other aspect of our lives and all the other brokenness we find, it flows from them to others. Because each of them are not only ways that we seek life and what can only bring about death, but they're us seeking that life in good things, good things, earthly gifts from God but they whisper to us, this will satisfy. This will be it. This will give you the life that you've always been looking for. This is what you can and must live for now. And so envy whispers success. Vanity, it whispers image or reputation, how we look on the outside or what people think about us. Image, reputation, greed whispers money and possessions. Lust and gluttony says physical pleasure. That will do it. That will satisfy. You live for that. Wrath, of course, shouts justice. It whispers, you can be in control. And again, friends, these are good things, good gifts of God. But if we take any good thing and we make them into the thing, the thing that we set our hearts upon, the thing that we orient our lives around, the thing that, that sucks everything about our lives and our identity into it, that good thing becomes a very dangerous, deadly thing. And we die spiritually first, emotionally, relationally, die. And we won't find joy. In fact, we'll find ourselves owned. Alyssa and I recently watched the film, The Tender Bar. It's a good movie. It stars Ben Affleck. It's rated R. Rotten Tomatoes crushed it, giving it only like a 51% rating. So beware. But it has compelling characters in it. It's based upon a memoir. And Ben Affleck plays the uncle to this character, J.R. McGuire, whose father, a famous disc jockey in New York City, abandons him as a young child. And he and his mother move back into the mother's family home. And in this very profound, tender, funny, and poignant moment, Uncle Charlie, 
from Long Island. I'm not going to do a Long Island accent. I couldn't do it. But in, he says this to JR as a young child. He says, I'm always going to tell you the truth. I saw you playing sports in the yard. You're not very good and probably not going to get a whole lot better. So it might be wise for you in order to avoid tears and disappointment and above all delusion, you know, find some other activities you like. And this thing about the radio, you're going to look for your father in the radio. You think your father is in the radio. He's not in the radio. He's just a jerk who happens to be on the radio. Don't look for your father to save you and don't play sports. That's all I have to say. But JR, he does look to his father to save him. He lives for years and years as if this one terrible man would just be different to him, then his life would be okay, then his life would be right and everything would be okay. And then after that, that doesn't work, then he, he lives as if school can save him. Because again, he's not good at sports. He's good at school. He gets into Yale, but school also fails him. His good grades can't erase all of the pain in his life and all the problems, all of his failures and his family's failures. And then of course, there's a girl. There's always a girl. And this is a Yale girl and she's wealthy and she's beautiful and she's brilliant. And he wastes years of his life on her, believing that if he can just have her, she can give him life. But she nearly kills him. Emotionally, she eviscerates him. Morally and physically, she almost turns him into an alcoholic, just like his father. And again, all good things. A relationship with a father, good thing. Success in school or in work, a good thing. The love of a woman, the love of a man, the love of someone else in this world is a good thing. Gifts of God, but they don't save JR. They end up owning him. Because if any good thing is loved too much or valued too much, or sought too intensely or exclusively, it doesn't lead to life. It leads to death. And so I wonder this morning if that is what you need to hear on Easter, that you're seeking life in a way that can actually only lead to death. And if you are, you're in the right place. Because here's what the angels say that Jesus had to do, point two. In verse seven, they say, the son of man had to be crucified. Another unique detail about Luke's account of Jesus's crucifixion is that there's more commentary in it than the other gospel accounts. Everyone says something in Luke's gospel as Jesus dies. The Jewish leaders, they scoff at Jesus. The Roman soldiers mock him. He has two criminals hanging on each side of him in Luke, and they each say something. One expresses faith in him. The other rails at him in anger and in fear and says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And friends, that is it. In that small comment, we learned so much that the central message of the scriptures from beginning to end is just this, that saving himself and us is exactly what he could not do. And Luke is especially emphatic about this. The Jewish rulers yell it. If you are the Christ, save yourself. You saved others. Roman soldiers, if you really are a king, they, they respected a king. If you really are a king, save yourself. And then the criminal on the cross, three different types of people, three different times, each demanding that Jesus prove his identity and his power through self-preservation and through self-service because that's the way of our world. That is the way of our world for us to use our own strength and our own power to meet our own needs. It's our world's highest value to save and serve ourselves. That is our world and the essence of sin and the brokenness in it. But it is not God. And it is not the Christian faith. 
because we cannot save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to atone for all that's wrong in our life, all that we've done, that others have done. There's nothing that we can do to convince ourselves that we are enough in our eyes or the eyes of others, successful enough or strong enough or needed enough or important enough or beautiful enough or good enough, good enough to give ourselves meaning and purpose and to know true joy because human self-salvation is a myth. And God the Son took on our human life not to have any part of that, but to undo it and to end it from the inside out. And at one of the funerals that I performed so far this year, I read this story. I've read it at some other funerals that you've probably been to. Maybe I'll read it at your funeral. It's a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a man named Donald Barnhouse. He was there from the 1930s all the way through the 1950s. His wife, Ruth, died of cancer when they were very young. She was only in her 30s, and she left behind not only him, but four young children. And this is what he wrote after his wife's death. He says, I was driving with my children to my wife's funeral. As we came into one small town, there strode down in front of us a truck that came to stop before a red light. It was the biggest truck I ever saw in my life, and the sun was shining on it at just the right angle that took its shadow and spread it across the snow on the field beside it. As the snow covered that field, I said, children, look at that truck and look at its shadow. If you had to be run over, which would you rather be run over by? Would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? My youngest child said, the shadow couldn't hurt anybody. And I said, that's right. And death is a truck, but the shadow is all that ever touches the Christian. The truck ran over the Lord Jesus. Only the shadow has gone over your mother. Because Jesus could not save himself in us. And so he didn't save himself. He was willingly, as Donald Barnhouse says, hit by the truck. He died under the judgment of God for our sin and for our brokenness so that we wouldn't. And that means that if you are a Christian or you would become one, you don't have to tremble. You don't have to shake like those women in Mark. And you don't have to be overwhelmed and crushed by grief like Mary and John, regardless of what you face. And I know many of you face very grievous things right now. You don't have to be overwhelmed. And you don't have to attempt to shake the world yourself by shouting at it or controlling it, by even shouting at God in anger or at the world in anger. Because God's not shouting at you. He's not angry with you. On the cross, Jesus didn't express the anger of God. He absorbed it in order that he might extinguish it for you, for me, out of his great love for us, in order to forgive us and to reconcile us to himself and to free us from whatever it is that we in dependency would entrust ourselves to that doesn't give life, even though it promises it, but just takes it. And finally, to restore everything that we've lost, everything, whether loved ones or your reputation or your physical health, your self-worth or your agency and ability to resist what's harming you. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus did it. It's also the promise that someday all things will be made new. All things, all good things. Because the resurrection is the proof that Jesus has done everything necessary to impart to you and to all creation, all you need in order to know the life that began when he rose from the dead. And friends, I believe that is what you need to hear this Easter 
and every Easter. The offer is always the same, to come to him in faith that you might partake and share of his new resurrected life because we will all die. We will all die, but death, because of Jesus, death can't last because he entered it. He entered death and he descended into hell in order to wrestle supremacy away from both of them forever. And that means that just as Jesus was raised, so too will you be raised bodily. And even now we're no longer owned by anything broken, sad, dark. We're, we're owned, we're ruled by Jesus and free from, from anything that would, that would promise life to us, but only give death and only take it. And back very quickly to the tender bar for just a moment. Throughout this movie, J.R., he never is free. He's always captive. He's always owned by so many things until the very end when his uncle Charlie gives him a gift, a precious, unimaginable, priceless gift. And in that moment, when that gift is given, J.R. realizes what, he's, what has been true all along, that he's always had the relationship that he was looking for. He's always had, it's always been there. What he always sought and needed was always there, though he couldn't recognize it. One of his friends earlier in the film said, you're looking for a father. You have a father. You have your uncle Charlie, but he couldn't see it. He couldn't embrace it until the gift was given. And when that gift was given, everything changed. And the movie ends with him driving away into an entirely new life with an expression of joy and delight upon his smiling face. And friends, Jesus is the gift. He is the gift from your true heavenly father. You have him. He is not here. He is risen. So you have what you have always sought. So this day above all days, rejoice. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in the gift that you have been given by your loving heavenly father. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would enable us even now by your spirit to embrace and to recognize all that you have given. May we be overwhelmed and delight and joy with who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.